Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. What does intelligence really mean? Throughout history, humans have looked in the mirror and defined intelligence in their image, a very narrow image. Tests have been designed to measure people and even animals against this narrow definition of intelligence. And although in recent times there have been advances in understanding the flaws of this, it's been recognized that there are more diverse forms of intelligence, there is still a long way for us to go. Recently, I saw the documentary My Octopus Teacher which is a fascinating look at the way octopus behaves, thinks, and problem solves, truly eye-opening, and raises the question, what other forms of problem solving and ways of interacting with the world are we missing? The octopus is a mysterious creature that defies what we consider intelligence to look like. Studying and appreciating the different forms of intelligence of the octopus and other living creatures can free us from too narrow assumptions of what it is and open us up to the possibilities of other forms of intelligence and problem-solving. As humanity strives to design artificial intelligence and other technologies, it is humbling and imperative to look at all the forms of life and what they can teach us about intelligence and problem-solving. My guest in this episode is an international expert in octopus behavior. She was the scientific advisor on the award-winning Netflix documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Professor Jennifer Mather is professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Lethbridge in Canada and is the leading expert in the ethics of octopus. Professor Mather has been studying octopus for more than 40 years and found her love for the sea while growing up in Victoria, British Columbia. She served as the scientific advisor in the 2021 Oscar-winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher. The film tells the story of how Craig Foster, a South African filmmaker, spent a year with a wild octopus in the great African sea forest. In this time, he built a connection with the creature and started to understand the incredible intellect of the octopus. This connection between human and animals is something that Professor Mather studies extensively and has created a popular course called Human-Animal Interaction. In 2017, she received the Distinguished Teacher Award at the University of Lethbridge for her innovative approach to teaching. I'm so pleased to have Professor Mather on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I was really looking forward to talk to you. Your work is absolutely fascinating. Can you tell me, first of all, what got you interested in studying octopuses? You're one of the leading experts in the world. Where did this come from? Where did this inspiration come from? A lot of it has to do with where I grew up and how I grew up. Because I grew up in Victoria on the west coast of Canada. And my parents had a summer place. And they also had a boat. So I was on or near the water for as much time as I could possibly be. And you still find, I think, kids who go out in nature, who go out to the woods, who go out to the beach, and just kind of try to figure out what's there. In a way, it's too bad that we have what you would have to call the computer culture and the cell phones. Because I think in that sense, we lose something. If you just go out and sit down and watch, listen, and be quiet, 
you see an awful lot. That convinced me that I wanted to work with sea animals. When I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to work with sea animals. Didn't know just exactly how to go about it. I knew, and I guess this comes from watching the animals that I was really more interested in, how the whole animal worked, how the whole animal adapted to its environment. And so when people were talking about RNA and DNA and organelles and cells, I thought that was interesting, but that wasn't the level that I wanted to see. And it wasn't until I got to fourth year university and took an animal behavior course, and I went, oh, that's it. That's what I want to do, animal behavior. And because I've been focusing on mollusks, and because octopuses and their relatives are the most interesting in terms of behavior, I said, okay, those are the ones. What makes them interesting in terms of their behavior? That, that sparked you at that point in time. A great variety of behavior. A clam does indeed have behavior, but it's fairly limited. And I wanted to see what an animal was out and doing, that was going and exploring and feeding and avoiding being eaten and coming back home. I wanted to see how it all managed to do all these things. And to be honest, when I started, we didn't have any idea. People simply hadn't studied the octopus. Hmm. Amazing. And I, and I just love the fact that it is that interaction, which is so important for children to spend time in nature, to simply be in nature, to be able to learn to appreciate it, understand it. And your entire career stemmed from simply being in nature and being able to observe it in real life. Yes, that's true. And one of the things that educators are beginning to find out now is that play and exploration are very, very important for developing the brain, for developing cognition. That we shouldn't be giving children a lot of rules about what they should do. We should be letting them do. Um, and in fact, I'm a, I'm a big fan of learning by doing. Hopefully nothing dangerous, but apart from that. One of the fascinating aspects of an octopus and how they solve problems. You said, do they have a variety of ways of solving problems? Can you give an example of what you think is most interesting in the, the way they interact with the world and solve problems? Well, here's a capsule example that my colleague Roland Anderson, I got interested in. Supposing you have a clam. At that point, you know it's food, but you don't know what to do next. Because if you've got a shut clam, you really don't have the food. And he and I developed this idea that the octopus has a Swiss army knife of techniques. So the first thing the clam will do is we'll try to pull the two pieces, the two shells apart. And if that works, that's fine. But if it doesn't work, then the octopus has to figure out other techniques to get into the shell. And there's two techniques that they use. And one of the things that interested me most about this is that they're not looking at it anymore because they have a web of arms that surround the clown. And so that's nothing they can see. So they have to kind of do all this by feel, by exploring. There's a couple of things that they do. One of them is they turn the clown sideways and they drill a little hole right next to the muscle that's holding the two valves together. But once you have a hole in the shell, then you can inject a poison. Then you can weaken the muscle and then you can open it up. That's amazing. And it's not just anywhere because they put the hole into a specific part of the shell. Yes. Mostly what they do is they put it near what we call the adductor muscle. 
though we discovered one species that drills over the heart. Incredible. Which will do the same thing. But they don't just drill. It turns out that they, they also have a beak, which is like a parrot's beak. So they're very well equipped to get food, by the way, because there are many things they can do to the different species. And they can chip a little bit of the shell off the valve. Now, as soon as you've chipped a little bit off that, you've done exactly the same thing. You've opened up a hole and now you can just inject the poison. And it's incredible that they know where to have that hole. Yes. Now, we've got evidence from one particular individual who did a master's project who finally did something I always wanted to do, which is to find octopuses that were young enough that they'd never seen a clam or a snail and to see if they had to learn where to put the hole. And it turns out the answer is yes, but they learn pretty fast. Hmm. So within the second or the third drill hole, they're putting it in the right place. So it's probable that there's what we call facilitated learning, which we have as well, of course, that we do learn, but we're guided by our pre-programming. So a beautiful example of this in humans, of course, would be language, because we clearly have a, a language capacity. On the other hand, it's really also very obvious that everybody learns different languages. So this combination of pre-programming and learning this is true for all animals and exactly which you use more of and exactly when you use more of it. Yeah, that's different from species to species and from task to task. And the octopus is also different in the sense that they don't actually learn from the parent. They never really meet their parent, do they? That's right, because the mother octopus tends the eggs and it can be anywhere from 100 to tens of thousands, by the way. And she takes care of them and she makes sure that fungi don't grow on them and she blows jets of water at them so that they're ventilated. But she dies about the time they hatch. Unbelievable. And even if she were still alive, it wouldn't make much sense to have contact because the eggs can vary, but many, many species have eggs the size of a rice grain. So the animals that hatch from those eggs are tiny. We call them paralarvae because they're not true larvae but they go floating off in the open ocean. So she wouldn't be anywhere near them, even if she did live. But they have this big bang reproduction all at once at the end of the lifespan. So there's clearly no teaching by parents. This is all trial and error learning. Incredible. Wow. We underestimate the different ways that animals can interact uh, with the world, learn and solve problems. Um, and, and we're quite narrow-minded in our in our thinking about how, how we learn, how we solve problems, how we interact with the world, and we judge others by this narrow perspective. And animals such as the octopus, which most people know very little about, demonstrates that there's so much for us to know, so many different ways of solving problems and interacting with the world and sensing the world, that unless we are more humble and open to this and learning from these all the incredible creatures in the world, we really limit our own problem solving. What we can develop to solve the complex problems of the world is limited when we have a limited view of intelligence and problem solving. Your work and your insights on this, I think, really sheds a light on all the different ways that it's possible to interact with the world and that we need to be more humble in the way that that we're thinking about it. Yes, I think one of the important things is that we have a tendency because we are very dependent on vision to think that vision offers 
all of the ways that we sense the environment. And, and it's, it's kind of a paradox because the octopuses have eyes, like we have eyes. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's also true. The octopuses don't use vision for a lot of tasks like we do, which is why, and it's not just the octopuses. When researchers discovered that primates in particular, if they have a mark on the skin of their head and their face, and you give them a mirror, they can understand that the image in the mirror is themselves. These researchers thought that was fascinating and interesting, which I agree. But they kind of said, well, that indicates the amount of intelligence you have. So if you can recognize yourself in the mirror, that's some kind of intelligence test. But the problem is octopuses don't do that. So that doesn't mean they're stupid. And there are other species as well. I believe that birds have not been shown to have the mark test, pass the mark test. And parrots in particular, and corvids like ravens and crows are very intelligent. It's just that this isn't the way that they're picking up information. Now, we, on the other hand, if you want to look at it this way, we are really terrible at picking up chemical information. But if you look at tracking dogs, you can give them the scent of a person's clothes and ask them to find the person as they walked along through the woods, for instance. If you were a believer in chemical cues, you would say that humans are very unintelligent and dogs are very smart. The sensory information and to some extent the kind of tasks you can do. And because we focus too hard on vision, we have a tendency to lose understanding how smart other animals are. Interesting. And yes, and you have said that there are many different cues uh, in the world, so many of them that humans can't pick up at all. And one of them, you said that they interact with light very differently. They can't see colors. But what the octopus can do that we can't is it can perceive the plane of polarization of light. And the only way that I can think of this is to say that light consists of vibrating waves, but they can vibrate in any direction. I can't see it, you can't see it. We kind of just have to take that one on trust. But the octopus can perceive the difference between light that's vibrating, say vertically, and light that's vibrating horizontally. So can other species. Interestingly enough, bees use the plane of polarization of light coming from the sky Interesting. for navigation. And we do not know, there's just a tiny little trivial hint from one researcher about what octopuses use the plane of polarization of light for. They may indeed use it for navigation in the water. By the way, I was going to mention something in terms of capacity for animals to perform a particular test. We know they may or may not be picking up these sensory cues but they may or may not have the connections to use motor actions to tell us, so to speak, whether they're using that information and how they're solving those problems. So clearly, if you're a monkey and you see a spot on your fur, you move your hand to it and you try to groom it. Right. But how would you figure out whether a dolphin is able to pass the mirror test? because the dolphin doesn't have any hands. 
Right. So the mirror test is that there's a dot on the animal, yes, which they look in the mirror and seeing it, a human or a monkey would want to rub that, would recognize that that image of it's them in the mirror and they would want to rub off the, but of course a dolphin wouldn't be able to rub off a dot. That's right. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't see it. Yes. Now they have found that they attend to it. So it's fairly clear that they notice it. Okay. But they can't rub off the dot. Right. And this really speaks to the way we test for intelligence. This really uh, speaks to testing in general, is that we've put out this test. This has been a scientifically used test to mark intelligence and other species. And clearly, without the thought before it was used, that actually some creatures can't demonstrate that because they don't have arms the way the way we do. But I think this has much wider ramifications thinking about this. Of course, there's a lot of debate about testing uh, students in the school systems and the biases and the underlying assumptions that those writing the test were not even aware of. And then this really demonstrates that in such a big way that we really need to think about how do we test and why and and the need to be humble and open-minded. Yes, now I remember an absolutely classic example about this. There were questions on IQ tests for children about trees. And somebody pointed out that Inuit children hadn't seen trees because they're above the tree line. That's right. So if you ask them some kind of question about leaves falling from the trees, they'd be going, what? And as they see videos... And I remember, and this is a general thing, and it didn't stop any intelligence test, but growing up in Victoria, while I was fascinated with stories about the turn of the seasons from heat to cold and snow and the leaves falling off the trees. Fortunately, that's not what happens most of the time in Victoria. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many deciduous trees. There isn't that much cold and snow. So I really didn't connect with these children's stories that told me about all these. Hmm. And then I moved to Boston and then I did connect. Right. (laughs) Yes. It's such an important thing to keep in mind. And of course, that's being increasingly the work in bias learning materials and in testing in the implicit bias uh, that might be ingrained in that testing methodology, as you said. And so to include that in a test is unfair. I remember doing some research in Hawaii, because of course I had seen snow. It does snow in Victoria. Mm -hmm. But I was talking to some people who'd been born and raised in Hawaii, and they said, oh, it must be fascinating to see snow. And I said, it's overestimated. By about the (laughs) second day, you've had enough. (laughs) But of course, they had literally never seen snow. Mm. And we are discovering that tribal groups in the rainforest of Africa seem not to have good distance vision. And it's probable that their experience when they're children of never being able to see really far kind of sensitizes their visual system not to be able to pick up the distance cues that we take completely for granted. So it's a sensory thing. It's a, it's a motor thing and it's a use thing. And that's probably why it's so important to give children free play. Because think of it this way, if we knew what it was children needed to learn, 
presumably we could teach them that, but we don't know what the world's going to be like in 50 years. We don't really know what it is we need to teach them now that will be very important 50 years from now. Certainly with the change in climate and the changing ecosystems, it's going to be important that they understand what the new world is going to be like. And so how do you think play really helps in this regard? Well, play helps them in the sense that they figure out how to extract information from the environment. They they figure out, see, we have to be careful if we say, okay, if we lecture and children memorize and then they give us the answers and they know how the world works. Because if we give them the opportunity to find out, they learn much better. And not only that, they learn the job of finding out. So one of the things that fascinates me is that octopuses are tremendous explorers. So you put something in their tank and they'll spend a lot of time touching it, feeling with their arms, biting at it. And then maybe they'll lose interest and it'll float away or whatever. But there's really a balance between what we call exploration and exploitation. Exploration means finding out how the world works and gathering information about how it works. And exploitation is using what you've learned to get whatever it is you want. So you said that the octopus has an insatiable desire for exploration. Is that comparable to any other species? When I was reading up on other species, I found the New Zealand bird called a kea, K-E-A. And the chaos apparently do this kind of thing as well. They're a threatened species, so there's a park where people can come to wash them. And people drive up in their cars and the chaos come and sit on the cars and they pick out all the rubber bits and pieces from the car. So people come back to their car and they discover that the rubber lining and the window is missing and the rubber on the bumper is gone or whatever. And people have tested the chaos And they found that if you give them the opportunities to socialize versus the opportunity to manipulate, they will actually choose to manipulate things. So to really explore, to constantly be learning and exploring their environment. Yeah. Now, this is the kind of thing that we would expect a generalist species to have to do. So this should be a species that needs to live in many different kinds of environments. Mm -hmm. This should be a species that needs to figure out how to exploit many different food sources. This should be a species that has different ways of relating to different other animals. And that's the octopus, but that's also us. Right. So it has an an absolute need, but it also is demonstrating an insatiable desire to be learning, isn't it? That's right. And remember, a lot of marine animals have protection. They have shells. They have spines, they have poison, and the octopus doesn't have any of those things. Mm-hmm. So it has to learn by its wits. Interesting. So in that respect, it is very similar to humans who also need to be constantly learning because physically we have very little protection. We're not the biggest animal, we're not the most protected animal, and but we need to be constantly learning. Is that is that the kind of connection you're making? That's a fair parallel. Interesting. Because clearly we're puny next to an elephant. 
seeing the huge spectrum of ways that it's possible to interact with our world. One of the courses that you teach is called Human-Animal Interactions. So can you tell me a little bit about this? Well, I got interested in ethical issues and issues to do with how we interact with animals because, of course, octopuses are very smart. But in terms of ethical regulations, there have not been good regulation for what we can do to these animals. And in fact, in the United States, even now, you can do to any invertebrate, whatever you would do to dissect it out tissue, which is really appalling to think about. You you string them up by their arms and leave them to die. And anyway, that's really horrifying. So I got interested in the ethical issues and all the different ways that I interacted with animals and other people interacted with animals. And actually, we had a faculty member who had to take medical leave and we were looking for ideas that somebody could fill in his class for the next semester. And my department chair said, well, you've done a lot of stuff on regulations and animal welfare. Could you do something about that? And I thought about it, about that. okay, sure. But I had about a year, which was very, very useful because I had to do an awful lot of reading. And I thought that the best way to do it would be to have the students think about the philosophical viewpoints before we began to talk about the different categories. And so they begin the class in the first few weeks of the class thinking about what the philosophy is towards animals and what their particular philosophy is. And then we begin to talk about how it could be. What would be some examples of that? I mean, when we think about what the philosophy, I mean, what what would be some examples in terms of the variety of different philosophies? Well, the Christian ethos is man shall have dominion over the earth and all the animals therein, Mm. which to some extent is what we do in the West And it translates to, I can do anything I like. Mm. On the other hand, if you look at the Plains Indians viewpoint, they felt very strongly that each animal was, it, it had its own power, its own way of doing things. And we could learn from watching it. So in that sense, they didn't think of us as superior. They thought of us as one in a galaxy of equals. And I would really love to see us doing more of that, and less of the dominion part. So the students inevitably think about dogs and cats. And of course, they care very much about dogs and cats. And then we start doing the interaction with other animals. And I start off with what I say is the closest possible association in the kind of dogs and cats. And I say parasites. And then we all come smack dab up against our philosophy. Hmm. Because if I say I care about animals, ask me what I do about the mosquito and the champion. It's really obvious. Hmm. And we come to see it's a balance. Right. And I often have fascinating discussions in that class where people will say, well, I know the mice are cute little things and they ought to live, but not in my living room. (laughs) Do you think Which is sometimes, kind of the way I feel about it. Right. Do you think it's a lack also with greater understanding? I mean, I know I came away from that documentary thinking, oh, my goodness, and, and reading the article, uh, or several articles that you put out and about your work, 
talking about the regulations of octopuses and, and such animals or the lack of regulations and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm never going to eat calamari again because it's just appalling. Do you think with more education, we can appreciate all the different aspects? I mean, in, in terms of learning, of course, we're talking about learning, appreciating the different forms of interacting with the world different. Do you think it's if we learn more and interact as you were on the beach as a child growing up on the beach, would that really enhance our consciousness in this way? Oh, I think so. Yes. Of course, one can argue that it's going to turn us all into vegetarians because we're going to say, I shouldn't eat this animal, this animal, this animal. And it's probably a good idea because if you look, for instance, at beef, the conversion efficiency of what the animal eats to flesh, which is what we eat, is 10 to 1. So it takes 10 pounds of food to produce a pound of beef. But if you look at chicken, for instance, it's, I think, 2.5 to 1. And one of the problems in the United States is that the corn crop is going to feed the cattle, not to feed the people. So in that sense, it's more, much more efficient for us to eat corn than to eat beef. But there's one thing that you might think of in terms of knowledge that we have honestly probably debates in a 50-50 split in the class. Should we have animals confined to zoos and aquariums? Because in many ways, the zoos are very poor places for wild animals. They don't actually have to be, but they very often are. Right. So they're confined in small cages. They don't have a chance to express all the ways that they would live. And keeping a tiger in a zoo can be argued to be cruel. Just as, by the way, keeping a killer whale in an aquarium has been judged to be cruel and SeaWorld was the last place to keep them and they have now stopped. Unfortunately, not because they're wonderfully ethical, but because people began to blackball them because they perceived that this was cruel captivity. And yet, if we don't see these animals, how can we understand them? Interesting. And in terms of the human-animal interactions, what do you think we should consider in the way that we interact with animals? What do you think really wish people knew or thought about? Oh, I think to say that you would respect the animal would probably cover it all. To respect the animal in the sense that you gave it an environment that was as close as its natural environment as possible. Mm -hmm. To respect the animal in that you didn't make it suffer, that you didn't cause it pain to respect the animal in the sense that you didn't impose your will on everything that it did, but at the same time allowed it to do much more of what it wants to do. All these interesting forms of how we interact with animals, all the things we can learn about because we still know so, there's still so much for us to learn about animals. Would you say that's true, that there's, there's a lot that we still have not discovered? Oh, absolutely. Even the animals we know fairly well, I think we haven't discovered as much as we could. Mm. Things like um, Cy Montgomery, who got fascinated by octopuses and came along and observed with me. She's talked about her chickens. And we think, you know, chickens are 
birds that sit in cages and lay eggs so that we can eat them. But in fact, they, they make a group and they have a very strict hierarchy. And, they, and it turns out that if you have a rooster with the hens, the rooster will actually find and point out food for the hens to come and eat. So an animal that we tend to think of as a mechanical egg layer, in fact, has volumes of interesting interactions. And if it comes to the ocean, we're still discovering new species all the time, let alone knowing what they're doing out there. Absolutely. And with all of that we have talked about in terms of the different creatures sense the world, the different ways even among humans interact with the world and learn differently and solve problems differently. And the fact that we're still learning, as you said, we still don't know a lot of creatures that are out there, much less how so many of them function. What implications do you think that this have on the way that we solve problems? Because the type of problems humanity needs to find is increasingly more complex and increasingly we need to be doing it faster. We're creating very powerful machines such as AI. From your knowledge and from your expertise, what do you think we should be really taking into consideration as we're moving forward in problem solving and in creating these new forms of intelligence? Well, to some extent, we have a huge advantage over other animals because we explicitly teach our young how to problem solve, what to take into consideration, what to program. On the other hand, as I said, I think the fact that we evolved probably in small groups and the fact that we didn't live long lives has led to us not having enough flexibility in terms of what we need to know and also not, to ha not having the long-range vision to know, for instance, what we're doing to the planet. So in a way, I think we have to move into a new age of understanding, understanding further in many different ways before we do these technologies that do damage. Absolutely. That's very interesting. We should be constantly actively learning about how we are interacting with the world and the new ways that we are creating this interaction. And of course we do, but kind of retrospectively a little bit. Yes. I think to some extent we, we do things and then we think about the consequences. Yes. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that rather than zealously jumping onto a bandwagon and saying, well, this is now the new way of doing such and such, of interacting, of socializing, of working, we should pull back our enthusiasm and say, yes, we're doing this, but we're also consciously learning in the process rather than jumping on the bandwagon and then years later, retrospectively studying what happened. Is that what I'm understanding from you? I think that's probably true. We probably ought to be watching and listening more and not doing so fast. I like that. We should be watching and listening more and not doing so fast. I think that's something that's very, very important to keep in mind. Yes. Absolutely. You're a very creative and passionate educator, and you've won a lot of awards actually for your teaching. Uh, so I wanted to get a little bit of a, a sense of your approach to teaching. Well, I suppose the simplest way to put it is that it's not my teaching, it's their learning. So you have a different mindset of thinking about it. Yes. What are the implications of that? What does that look like for you? Probably the simplest thing to say is I should make sure they have more control. So if you lecture and you give students facts and they memorize the facts, then remember what we were talking about with Piaget, who said play is a child's learning. To some extent, I think we forget that 
as children grow up. And so, for instance, one of the courses I'm teaching this coming semester, I use something called inquiry learning. And the inquiry learning is interesting in the sense that it kind of turns it around. So it says, well, you have this body of information you want them to acquire. Ask them what they want to learn and then provide a way that they can learn. So if you take a chapter of the text, instead of lecturing about what's in the chapter, I would say, and I do this in groups because it's not feasible to do it individually. Okay, each group's going to come up with a question that stems from the information of the chapter. And then each group is going to answer someone else's question. Wow. So they pose a question and then another group has finds a way to teach them. Yep. How do you set them up in a way that that's successful? So if someone is looking to incorporate that. I give them as much information about the process as possible. I give them information about what would be a good question. And then it's a matter of support. So for instance, I finally found somebody who said it. I'm not sage on the stage. I'm guide by their side. And I think you have to know quite a bit about an area before you start to encourage students to be a guide on the side. Yeah, it takes courage to move from being in the center to being in the periphery. That's right. Absolutely. And I think you touched on a very important point is that this this idea is very prevalent, but it's very important to recognize that actually as the teacher, you actually need more knowledge rather than less to be a truly good guide on the side. And that's very, very important. And so you're also working on ways to generate better student evaluations for these types of very uh, non-traditional teaching methods. Can you tell me about this, about the evaluations you're designing? Well, you see, one of the things that we have discovered as educators is that the traditional student evaluations of teachers aren't really very good. To explain if you have, what did the teacher do with this? And how did the teacher do this and this and this, right? If you have a class of 40, you'll probably get about 20 responses. Many of them are people who didn't like what you did. Some of them are people who did like what you did. But the people in the middle that I want to know about, the people who you know kind of got it and kind of thought maybe they don't answer. So one thing we need to do is to figure out how to get all of them to talk about it. Another thing I think is important is what I have in my course outline is learning goals. And this is a concept that has been embraced, particularly in the UK. And sometimes it's a pain in the neck, but. To have clear learning goals, you mean? Yeah. These are the things I want you to be able to do when you get through this class. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the class, say, these were the goals that I wanted you to attain. How did you do? So important. Absolutely. Yeah. And do you have tips for for educators on how to develop? Because I see some of those learning goals. I I can see that they could be improved. Do you you have tips on how to make sure that you have good learning goals that are effective? Don't make them too tiny. So one of them would be, I want my students to learn critical thinking, but this is not easy. But if I tried to say, I want you to do this and this and this and the steps to critical thinking, I think we would fail. Nonetheless, there's probably, and I have a one page handout 
that says, what do I mean by critical thinking? What are the steps for critical thinking? Right. So I can tell them what the steps are, but at the end of it, I want to know how well they did the whole task. That's right. Okay. So okay. you break it so down. I think that's probably important. Yeah. You can break it down, but it's big things. And in some ways, I think that the lessons that students learn at university are not things that are obvious to them right away. Mm -hmm. And maybe slow down, watch, and listen is still true. Slow down, watch, and listen. Always very important, uh, yeah. definitely. On the other hand, right. so learning how to get along with other people, even though you may not necessarily agree with everything they say, by gosh, that's important too. Absolutely. And it seems to me like that really encapsulates a lot of your work. I mean, you're saying in your classroom with your students, you're helping them to learn about each other, learn to work together. And in your work with animals, you also are really helping to educate and, uh, and to shed light on how to interact, how to be conscious of the way that we interact, and really all of us to be able to work together in a sense, appreciate each other and recognize the value that others are providing. Yes, and I suppose to some extent, if you understood how different animals behave and how they specialize in the different use of different senses and the different responses, it must be almost inevitable that you would take it back to working with people and to see different personalities and to see different cultural backgrounds. I don't know if it's true, but I would hope that that's a lesson that's transformed. Fantastic. That's really good. Uh, well, thank you so much. You shared so many interesting insights and ways of understanding other living creatures and thinking about our own ways of how we interact with the world, how we test for knowledge, how we test for creativity and intelligence, and to recognize really that there's such incredible diversity that we need to understand and appreciate in order for us to be able to move forward. Diversity among people, diversity in living creatures in the way that they interact with the world in the way that they problem solve, and that can only help the way yes. we are able to move forward in this world. It's been fun talking about it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you sharing with us. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you.